This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Practical Possibilities, a segment of Dragon Mind brought to you by Incendium D&D. In this segment, we'll be diving into the concrete mechanics of 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, analyzing its different options, and giving recommendations for new and veteran players alike. In today's episode, Ian and I analyze the Cleric, my recommended entry point for players that want to dive into healing and support. If you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we restream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. I think today I want to start with just explaining the method of our madness, so to speak. You may notice that we started with Barbarian and then went to Warlock and now we're on to Cleric. And there actually is a reason why we're going in that order. It's because I wanted to start with the simpler classes, but also tackling different roles. So a lot of the martial characters just tend to be kind of simpler. So barbarian, fighter, rogue, those are usually simpler classes than spellcasters like clerics, wizards, druids. But also I feel like our conversation would get stuck in this is a martial character that hits things with weapons slightly differently than this other martial character that hits things with weapons. So instead, the way I've been organizing which classes we talk about has to do with the role that they play in the party's composition. So Barbarian is a straightforward, simple melee tank, very survivable character. And as we talked about on that first Practical Possibilities episodes, it's really about strength melee. Warlock, I wanted to hit next because Warlock, we had a lot to say about it. It is simpler in terms of the spellcasters and its real thing is ranged damage. You can build fighters, rangers, and rogues to be other things than just ranged damage. And even Warlock, you can build a Hexblade, but every Warlock you build is really going to be ranged damage because of that Eldritch Blast. So when I was thinking of the different roles, uh, that brought me to healer. So, and I think that healing just as a role is one of the most complicated roles that you can take on in fifth edition D&D. It requires very specific attention and very specific timing. And when I was thinking, you know, you've got a new player and they're thinking of different character concepts. If they want to be a healer character, which one is probably going to be the simplest? And of the ones in fifth edition, it's my opinion that if you really want the simplest, it actually is the cleric, even though cleric as a class is far more complex when put next to barbarian and warlock. I have played a good number of clerics. I've seen a lot of different cleric domains in action, but I wanted to start today's conversation a little bit more conceptual than usual because, you know, we spent a lot of time last podcast talking about warlocks otherworldly patrons how warlocks have that built-in story and i feel like clerics also have that built-in story in fact ian you sent me a meme once that's like what's the difference between a warlock and a cleric 
really they're both just getting the same otherworldly sugar daddy or something like that. And I thought that was a really funny way to put it. It also rings true. Like really, besides the fact that one is more divine, one may be more sinister, what is really the difference thematically between a warlock and a cleric? And my answer is that there really isn't one besides just the fact that they draw different mechanical abilities because you do have a celestial warlock and you also have kind of darker, more sinister cleric deities. The most memorable cleric I ever played was a Twilight Dom- Domain cleric in your Blood in the Valley prequel campaign that led up to Curse of Strahd. And as a DM, you were able to develop my patron, which in my head was also a deity because that's how they were described in the context of Blood in the Valley. So Ian, I was just curious if you could give us a rundown of what it was like developing a deity slash patron from the other side of the screen. So uh, I just want to give a little bit of context regarding this Blood in the Valley uh, game. It was, uh, you know, it was basically a precursor to Curse of Strahd uh, that I had made because I was already running Curse of Strahd at the time. And I didn't really know how to reconcile running two concurrent games of the same uh, setting and the same adventure. And and I just wanted to create something that felt a little bit more unique than that as well, because I'm always looking for something unique and memorable. So I came up with this idea. Well, what if I just like steal all the things from Curse of Strahd and put it into like a little bit, bit of a like prequel? Right. And there were a lot of things that stuck out to me when I was reading through Curse of Strahd, Uh, in in particular, Mother Night and the Morning Lord, who are implied to be aspects of other gods in Faerunian lore. Um, These gods are the typical like evil and good gods in Curse of Strahd, which we've talked about. And you've mentioned actually in the one of the recent Borrowing Brilliance podcasts that you know, it's nice to have evil and good because that makes things really easy and you don't have to worry or overthink about if you're making the right choices as a character. So I, I have nothing against how these were presented in Curse of Straw themselves, but I, I was looking at the time for a more three-dimensional uh, type of deity. And I noticed that Mother Night was kind of underwritten in the book. And that players might not even naturally encounter her throughout the adventure. And I thought there might be like a reason for this, you know, but they see the Morning Lord all the time. Where's Mother Night in all this? Uh, I figured that it, it could be that she was being like either usurped or suppressed and that her power was maybe like dwindling. And uh, so that's why she wasn't as present in the adventure. So I brought her into the light for this game, so to speak, and rewrote some of the lore as well, because there are characters in the game that are intrinsically linked to Mother Knight. And what I started to discover at the same time while I was doing this was that... Um, Normally, you know, D&D players, they think about patrons as, you know, strictly for warlocks, while gods and deities are for like clerics or paladins. But I always felt that, you know, that was kind of really like restrictive and vague. And so it was interesting that when your character came along and was in fact a cleric with the story of a warlock, 
in a lot of ways, um, it helped me flesh out what I had planned for this deity. And it helped me kind of draw those, those conclusions that we've been talking about. So I'm making it sound kind of like uh, your character was just a catalyst for Mother Night and me figuring out what I really wanted to do with that character in the adventure. But honestly, it was how you and the party were interacting with her that got me really excited. Uh, I, I think that role playing as a patron only became easier uh, since it was almost all text based during that game. And that gave me a lot of time to plan out how she would behave. Uh, I wanted a complicated character with motivations that would inspire the party to act. And sometimes, honestly, I, I just couldn't come up with anything. Uh, I mean, you know, there's plenty of stories out there of DMs letting the players come up with all the good stuff. Uh, and honestly, in that, in, in this case, it was it was pretty true. And your characters would often give me something to latch on to, and and another gap in the lore would be filled. And so I think that's what's kind of, you know, the best about patrons, if they're gods or, or other worldly beings, the role play is a give and take between the player and DM, and it, it inspires each other to take the next step in the story, especially when there's a fun and exciting twist. It, it kind of reminds me actually of how Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, when they were writing Good Omens, uh, which actually was developed into a Netflix, not Netflix series, Amazon series a while back. So if you want to watch it and don't feel like reading, you can check that out. Um, they wrote in the back of the book, uh, like an answer to a question, a frequently asked question, which was, how did you come up with all this? And their answer was, well, we just kind of tried taking turns, making each other laugh. And it seemed to work out in the end. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. The DM and the player are taking turns, creating drama and resolving tension. Uh, and, and, it, and it seems to work out. And that's what I really like the most about playing uh, a patron or a god or something like that for my players. Um, it, it's immersive for the DM and it's highly involving in it. And it's a very creative, exciting process. From my end of the screen as the player, before Blood in the Valley, I knew nothing about the Morning Lord or Mother Night as deities, as part of details of the Curse of Strahd setting. I didn't know anything about it. One thing that I loved was, like you were talking about with the ebb and flow between the DM and the player, these two deities in balance seemed to seem to naturally embody that same kind of flow where the morning Lord represented dawn, the new day, uh, the work you would do while the sun is high in the sky. Whereas mother night was about twilight and rest. And really you would pay homage to her so that you would have a good night's sleep so that you would stay safe during one of the more vulnerable times because people don't like the darkness. And I found it so fascinating how what her default lore is in Curse of Strahd was a warped view propagated by the Morning Lord's Church. I found that entire element of the campaign that you ran for us to be fascinating and that the reality was that Mother Knight had elected a champion to make sure she created a monster that fought monsters and I found that, to, that that's a story I'm really interested in. I love The Witcher. I love Helsing. Those kinds of uh, those kinds of stories 
where there's some kind of monstrous individual that has taken it upon themselves to be responsible for protecting innocent people um, and what that ends up doing to their character and their personality and everything. The other thing, I know that a few podcasts ago in our lenses, we were talking about deities and religion and that stuff. And I don't know if I've ever told this to you, but when I saw the Morning Lord and Mother Knight as local deities, as opposed to part of a larger pantheon, I was so captivated by the story that was happening in that precursor game. It made me dissatisfied with running a tight greater pantheon. I had always, uh, as a DM, basically as long as my players would let me, <laughs> uh, loved running the fourth edition, the Dawn War pantheon, where there's basically almost like Olympians. There are 12 greater deities, each with a very neat portfolio. And when you selected your cleric domain, you would pick one of them. But I realized that running my cosmology that way left out the room for these local deities. And wouldn't it be interesting if, say, Mother Night was this culture's interpretation of the Raven Queen? But also, what would it mean if the Raven Queen wasn't a greater deity just floating out in the cosmos or in the Shadowfell? What if she could have power taken away or power gained and not necessarily through just pure worship like default lore or a lot of, you know, a lot of fiction, how they treat deities and such. I was how you portrayed the relationship between the Morning Lord, Mother Knight, their relationship and their relationship with their worshipers and their communities basically inspired me to rethink my entire cosmology and my entire approach to religion and games. So kudos to you, Ian. Well, that's very, that's very flattering, John. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I do try really hard to uh, come up with creative ideas and, um, you know, solutions to, you know, problems like that, where like, like having greater deities like that. And, you know, should they be aspects of a greater deity if they're a local deity? You know, I've seen some really successful ideas uh, in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Um, the way Joe runs things on Advantage, they make it so that there are deities and there are spirits. Now, if you're listening to the Darkmoor Podcast Advantage, um, you know, this is a spoiler. Uh, you don't find this out until season two, so you can plug your ears for like 30 seconds. But basically, uh, the spirits, like these great spirits, basically, you know, they're reflections of the deities that used to be on the cusp, which is the material plane. So when the deities were walking the cusp, they kind of left this imprint on it. And that, and then when they left, that imprint kind of took a life of its own. It was like the memory of the deity during their time on the cusp. And as it took a life of its own, it started to embody different aspects that might not necessarily be, you know, kosher with the way the deity is doing things now. So it was a very interesting dynamic between the gods and the spirits. Uh, and I, that kind of creativity, you know, inspired me to not just accept the deities at face value as written in the PHB or the DMG. Uh, not because what the Wizards of the Coast has done is, is, you know, a poor job or something. It's great. It's fine. You know, it, it works for what it's supposed to be. And I think for deeper storytelling, like we've 
you know, been acknowledging lately, it's a little restrictive and it's unrealistic too, because, you know, I think I'm borrowing brilliance today. I was listening to it. You were saying how it's kind of weird how the good deity Coralon basically cursed these, uh, these elves who decided to go and worship Lulth to go and be underground when it's like, you know, they're supposed to be the good deity. So what the heck, right? You know, if morality does, if morality matters and, and things are restricted by morality in Faerun, why are gods allowed to be petty? You know, so I, I think that that pettiness is actually a lot more interesting. Uh, it creates a second dimension to the character of the god. And the first dimension is like their alignment. But even then their alignment is kind of not very useful. I think chaotic and lawful is okay, but I don't think good and evil is very useful. It's very subjective. So, yeah. And I know we've already done, you know, two recent Dragon Mind episodes about deities. Uh, Stephanie wanted to have a conversation about it on Borrowing Brilliance. So this is definitely a topic we've already like dove into. But one of the things that you just reminded me of was something that Jim Davis talked about on WebDM, which is that a lot of times world builders of fantasy worlds, especially nowadays, are viewing, quote unquote, medieval settings with a very modernist perspective. So even thinking back to something like the Greek pantheon, there are a lot of stories of overlapping deities and you know, yes, you have, say, like Poseidon is the god of the ocean, but then you've got like minor demigods that are like more specific aspects of it. And mythology is really messy. And a lot of times what happens is we try to neaten it up to make it more well understood. But like you said, Ian, that actually makes it less realistic and in some ways makes it more restrictive and less rich for storytelling purposes. And that's really what I've been trying to get across with the, the new approach of, you know, local deities, you know, localized religion. Maybe the, if there's like in your world, there's an empire. And I know this is the same for um, the Wild Mount campaign by Matthew Mercer, where the empire has like a list of deities you're allowed to pray to. They're like sanctioned deities that aren't going to cause too much rabble rousing if you worship them. So I love embracing the messiness of real world mythology and real world worship also without judgment. Cause that is something I do find is that oftentimes when religion is brought into D and D, there are a lot of people I've met that use it as an opportunity to comment on real world worship and real world religion and make some kind of statement, whether they intend to or not, uh, about their feelings toward organized religion. And so I do think that when you're um, when we're talking about cleric, you have to really be talking about faith, worship, conviction at the very least. Um, and because of how D&D is set up by default, you know, I, I think that it does a lot of good from both the DM, the player perspective and the table's culture to remind everyone the value of being respectful when it comes to how faith and religion is handled. I loved how in Blood in the Valley, there were complications when it came to religious practices. Like I said, it wasn't good that Mother Night's worship was banned by the Church of the Morning Lord, but there wasn't this judgment 
of organized religion in general. It was a very specific circumstance of things that can actually happen, but it's not like every morning Lord worshiper we met in the campaign, we were just like, bah, they're bad because they're part of the church or something like that. Right. That was something I actually got into on that borrowing brilliance episode is I, I do get uncomfortable when religion is used to set up the good guys and the bad guys, which is why it was refreshing that, you know, like you said, in Curse of Straw, the morning Lord is the good one. Mother Knight is the bad one. But the way you set it up was much more dynamic and much more rich to explore from a storytelling perspective. I think what I did with Blood in the Valley should be evidence like I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. Uh, you know, John's already said enough. Uh, and and that's that's been really, you know, welcoming uh, for me and uh, validating for me as a DM. But I, I think that, you know, based on this testimony, it's kind of evidence of what other DMs can look for out there when they're thinking about running an adventure of their own that has been pre-written like Curse of Strahd, that you don't have to follow the adventure exactly. And, and Wizards of the Coast, you know, they say this too. They say this, quote unquote, but they still write the adventure because some people like to follow, you know, follow the rules or whatever. They like to color inside the lines. Well, you know, I think by treating adventure modules as really good inspiration for how you might want to run an adventure with this kind of theme, this kind of tone, and these kinds of characters uh, can be very valuable for a DM. Maybe not a new DM so much because we've already talked about, you know, seven baby steps in Borrowing Brilliance uh, for, you know, new DMs. But, you know, if you've got some experience, not a lot, if you've got some experience and you're thinking you want to try something new, but you're still lacking like inspiration for like a full and cohesive campaign, then, uh, then this can be a really good strategy. Look at an adventure module, look at the beginning, middle and end of what it is, and then fill in the rest with inspiration you draw from the theme and the setting. I think that's a, I think that's a really good idea um, and something I'll probably look to do more often as I run adventures for different groups. I strive to defend Nui Zatalos and live up to my role as a spiritual leader. I journey to increase my knowledge of the cusp and cosmos. It has been prophesied that there is destiny in my blood. I fight for the honor of the name Steadyhand and the great kingdom of Firdearth. I wanted to find my true place in the world. I will protect my home and family at all costs. A young ruler's grasp for power threatens an already fractured world. Meet the heroes in Arc 2 of Advantage, a 5th edition D&D audio drama. Find us on all podcast apps. This is the part where we uh, we go over the nuts and bolts and everything. So cleric, in terms of an overall role, is really a support slash pivot character. And the reason I use the term support instead of something like healing or buffing is that what makes support such a tough role to play well is you have to know the best choice to make at the right time. And one of the things that you'll find very quickly in fifth edition, healing and damage are not equal as they aren't in real life. It's far easier to break your arm than it is to properly set and wait for your arm to heal. 
So uh, one of my favorite examples of this are two spells that are just the opposites of each other, inflict wounds and cure wounds, which are both available to a cleric. Inflict wounds, there's a spell attack to hit. Um, on a hit, it deals 3d10 necrotic damage. So anywhere between three and 30 points of damage. Although if you roll three tens with d10s, you know, congratulations, I've never done that. Whereas cure wounds uh, is 1d8 plus your spell cast modifier healing. You regain that number of hit points. There is an argument to be made of like, well, inflict wounds, you do have to hit them. But other than that, those two spells have the same range. They're the same spell slot level. They're just opposites in terms of function. Are you healing or hurting? And you can see that 3d10 is a very different amount of die to roll than 1d8 plus modifier. And that being said, the way damage works in 5e, if a player character falls to zero hit points, they're incapacitated. As long as they regain at least one hit point, they can fight as if nothing bad is going on. So, and it's something that a lot of people get frustrated with, with the system. Um, in a lot of ways, one of the spells healing word is highly criticized because of how easy it is to just bounce somebody back up and give them a full action economy. But it is good to acknowledge about the support role in that healing isn't always the best thing to do in the moment. Sometimes the best thing to do, even if you're a healing character, is figuring out how to deal a little bit of damage or figuring out how to provide some kind of effect that's going to boost the performance of your allies or protect them or something. If you look at Cleric as a package of possibilities, there's not a lot of functions that Cleric can't somehow cover if you build it correctly. Now, there are some that I think can be misleading, um, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But overall, I think one of the cleric's strongest points is that if you don't know where to start, you can start with a cleric and know that you're going to make everybody else stronger, but also you can be pretty self-sufficient too. Yeah, that that's I think that's really important because... You know, there's such a stigma around being the support person in any RPG party. I think that I think a lot of people are hesitant to to pick up a support character because they feel like the only thing they're going to be doing is healing and buffing. But like you said, John, there's a lot of possibilities beyond that. What do you do when nobody needs buffing? What if what do you do when they can't break your concentration? So bless or whatever is going to always be there. Uh, what do you do when nobody needs to be healed? They just have such a high AC or they position themselves correctly to where they don't need to worry about a fireball or, you know, being in front of the of the villain or the uh, the big bad of the encounter and getting knocked down to zero. You know, so it, I think the cleric it can be really useful in, in terms of like pretty much any role, just like you said, as long as it's time for that role to be filled. So moving on to who we recommend a cleric to, especially if you're a new player and you're just trying to figure out which class is best going to match what kind of gameplay you're looking for. There is a reason I picked this one as like the healing character. I think that because cleric can pivot between healing and damage dealing pretty easily, if you want to figure out healing in fifth edition, cleric is a great way to start while also maintaining some of the more survivability characteristics we'll get into. The other healing characters 
without thinking through supplements or anything are Bard and Druid. And both of those can be a bit more vulnerable. You have to be a lot more aware of things like positioning, um, where your allies are at. Whereas the cleric does have some benefits to being a bit beefier. Um, the other thing is that there are a lot of different stories that you can tell with the cleric. The At first level, clerics get their subclass choice, which is divine domain. And by default lore, that's like there are a lot of different deities in Dungeons and Dragons worlds. And like kind of the Greek or Roman pantheon, I think that's that's probably a good comparison. You might have a god of the storms or a god of light or a god of healing. And your cleric will have a built-in narrative that will help your character feel like they're meaningfully contributing to whatever story you're telling as a party. So, and in a lot of ways, like we talked about at the very beginning of this episode, the same folks that might be drawn to warlock because of that npc that in world connection may also be drawn to cleric now you might also get a split of personalities because i know from playing with a lot of new players the players interested in warlock are the ones that want to play more of a melodramatic character the ones that will be drawn more to cleric are going to be ones that usually want to build a good character most of the time players new players that want to choose a cleric aren't choosing them to be like evil or ruthless or anything like that you can definitely play a character like that and there are definitely subclasses like we mentioned earlier that will match up with that more sinister flavor and when you're a newer player a lot of times you're more looking at each class's archetype as opposed to the specific little things you can do with it. Yeah, and one of the strengths of Cleric is that they give you uh, certain domain spells that you basically just know all the time. And it has spells uh, that you can, you know, have and prepare, and you can prepare from any of that list. Yeah, and actually on the subject of uh, strengths, uh, things that this class is good at, all clerics gain medium armor proficiencies and shield proficiencies. And there are a good deal of clerics like life, order, war that also get a heavy armor proficiency. So for a full casting class, clerics have an awesome AC. Uh, they are very hard to hit, especially when you compare them to things like the wizard or the sorcerer that lack those armor proficiencies and in a lot of ways depend on their spell casting to manage their AC. Another thing is that they scale really well by themselves. One of the things we mentioned with both Warlock and Barbarian is that they're very front-loaded. A lot of times the best thing to do as a Warlock player is to multi-class into Sorcerer after second level. Uh, for Barbarian, your best stuff is gained between levels one and five pretty much after fifth level it's almost always more optimized to multi-class into a mar another martial class. With cleric, it's very easy to play a cleric well between level levels 1 and 20. It scales so well by itself. And like you said, Ian, because your spell's prepared, you're not really punished if you don't pick your best ideal list the first time around. 
but they also have a really good range of spells. You have spells like Bless, which makes everybody in your party better. You have spells like Healing Word, which is just a bonus action. It keeps your action free if you need to do any utility work or if you need to hit something with a weapon or use a cantrip. You also get spells like Spirit Guardians, which act as damage and control and area of effect all at the same time. And as long as you keep concentration up, the following turns, you have your action economy free to do other things as well. So what makes Cleric so cool is that if you're not a super skilled player, you can play it pretty well. But even if you're a veteran player, you don't need a lot of fancy multi-classing or a lot of complicated feat choices in order to make the most of it. To move on to some of the, the weaknesses of Cleric, uh, first, usually not the best stealth class. I've seen people try to build it. A lot of the times to make the most out of their armor proficiencies, clerics tend to have a higher strength rather than dexterity. And a lot of clerics wear heavy armor, which again, by their nature, gives disadvantage to stealth rolls. There are definitely ways around it, but if someone in your party is gonna fail that stealth check, it's probably going to be the cleric. The other thing is that because clerics have heavy armor and a lot of them have a an eighth level feature called divine strike i've seen a good number of people suggest tanking with a cleric and the reason i see this as a weakness is because the archetype and the description are not clear on the best use of a cleric to me First of all, if you are the healing character of the party, you should not be within range to get smacked <laughs> or possibly incapacitated or damaged fatally or anything because you're what's keeping everybody else alive. Also, I find that, you know, as a cleric with a lot of your spells, they require concentration. Every time you're taking damage, you have to roll to keep that concentration up and make the most of the spell you're concentrating on. Also, their hit die is just not as good. It's only a D8. It's not even a D10 or a D12 like some of the other tanking characters. So that being said, I do think that if you have another support character in the party, like I said, Cleric can pivot really well. To circle it back to your Blood in the Valley game, the party composition was a Warlock, funny enough, a Barbarian, Cleric, and Bard. And the Bard took Healing Spirit as one of their magical secrets. Because of that, they were really the support healing type character, which freed up my Twilight Domain Cleric in their heavy armor to go on the front lines and do more control effects through Spirit Guardians and Spiritual Weapon. So there's definitely a place for it, but I think thinking that your Cleric has a high armor class, maybe a pretty good constitution, so they should get up there in the front line. It just has never been my experience that that ends up well if they're the support character of the party and there's not another healing character to support them. Moving on to our subclass suggestions. Uh, for beginners, like the Warlock, I think that the good old SRD basic subclass is probably the best, which is the life domain cleric. Not only do you get your heavy armor proficiency, so you have a really good armor class, it does make the most out of your healing spells. I think life domain is a pretty strong healing character. 
Uh, you've got a decent expanded spell list. And your channel divinity allows you to heal if you run out of spell slots. So there's a lot of good things to like about life. I don't think it's the strongest subclass that you could pick. Um, and I definitely think that there are better ways to create more effective healing characters. But if you're a beginner player, it does a pretty good job of letting you do the thing you see your character doing. Now, if you're a veteran player or you want a more complex subclass, you know, I mentioned how much I love my Twilight Domain Cleric. That's still on the table. One of the ones I really fell in love with is the Order Domain Cleric. Reason being is that their first level feature, Voice of Authority, makes it so that if you target an ally with a spell like Bless or Healing Word, that ally can use their reaction to make a weapon attack. That can be a very cool, thoughtful, strategic element to the party's composition especially if you have a party rogue and you can set them up to trigger sneak attack outside of their turns. So not only are they doing sneak attack damage on their turn, outside of their turn, you're able to set it up so that they can get that sneak attack reaction as well. Basically, potentially doubling their expected damage output. Now, with these subclass recommendations, we also have to recommend the ones that we want you to stay away from. I think nature domain cleric is probably the one i would recommend not taking the most mostly because the theme of nature is way better embodied by the druid class to begin with there's a whole class about nature magic and there is even a sidebar about how there are some druids that worship one of dnd's many nature deities and there's nothing unique enough that the nature domain does that you can't get with druid or something else. Hey John, you know another you know another trap subclass of the cleric is actually the death domain cleric. And I'll tell you why, John, I'll tell you why. It's because I wanted to make a cleric uh cleric uh, monk multiclass, way of mercy monk and the death domain cleric, and I was so excited, John. I was so excited because I was going to use the hands of harm feature with uh one of the features in death domain that was supposed to like basically uh ignore resistances to necrotic damage uh if you're dealing necrotic damage and it was a trap it's a trap john don't listen to it don't listen to the wiki all right <laughs> it's if you look it up in the dmg it doesn't work that way it has to be a cleric spell it's it don't don't multi-class like that also it's just not that good um sadly it's not that good it's not as good as i had hoped and uh you know even though it sounds really cool if you want to do a cleric that has anything to do with death you might as well pick twilight and i think that is a good enough segue to bring us into multi-class viability i think that cleric is pretty good to multi-class into for a little bit of healing like Sorlock, there is a pretty famous multi-class trick to do with Cleric, which is you take one level of Life Domain, and then you take the Goodberry spell from Ranger or Druid, which are also Wisdom-based casters, and because of that, your Goodberries heal a lot more than they're supposed to, and it's really easy to kind of cheese the system that way. So Goodberry Life Domain Cleric multi-class try it out. And I think the other thing that's cool with Cleric is like we said, it scales really well on its own, but there are quite a few first level features that just mesh well with other classes. 
one particular build I saw on Treant Monk is a Clockwork Soul Sorcerer, and you multi-class it with one level of Order Domain Cleric, and because of their expanded spell list uh, from Clockwork Soul, just the amount of shenanigans you can do and making the most out of your support spells, it really is a, a fun build. I've seen it in play. It's actually in my latest campaign. Uh, super cool, super tactical, super thoughtful and strategic. But yeah, a lot of times some of the coolest cleric multi-classes come out of taking that first level of cleric for a bunch of things and meshing it with other class features creatively. So the last part, and this is the, again, the practical possibilities. This is what the show is named after. A lot of times, like we talked about in the first part of, of this episode, clerics are usually tied to divinity. Even in the context of D&D's default flavor text, clerics are often worshiping one of D&D's many gods. One of the things that I've been playing with, both as a player creating clerics and as a DM world building, is this concept that's a tiny little excerpt in the beginning of the Dungeon Master's Guide on page 13, which is about forces and philosophies. So kind of like the Jedis use the force. There are alternative ways that from a narrative perspective, your cleric can gain their cleric powers. And one of the things that I've really delved into and something that I've found a lot more dense from a storytelling perspective is that your cleric has a certain philosophy and their conviction is what fuels their cleric magic. So rather than clerics just being an extension of their, their deity's personality or mission, which a lot of times I found with new players and clerics, they really are just mirroring whatever deity their, their cleric worships. By having to think through how a cleric's domain interacts with that cleric's code of beliefs, I found that you get these very rich, thoughtful characters that meaningfully add to the dynamics of the party. A character I can think of in fiction is like Shepard Book from Firefly. I always found Book to be a fascinating character because even though he was a man of the cloth, he had this training in violence, and he had this ability to stay calm under pressure. He had these diplomatic skills, and he had these ways into higher culture, and he had this past that was never really explored in the show or the movie. I know the comic books really uh, explored it a whole lot, but it just added this kind of depth to his character. And so even though it ended up being that my cleric, uh, Vincent, who was the Twilight Domain cleric, even though he eventually was connected to Mother Night, who was a local deity, I originally envisioned him as just a character that embodied what Twilight meant. It wasn't that he, you know, light is good, darkness is evil, nothing that black and white. It was all about when is the right time to use light magic? When is the right time to use darkness magic? It was this yin and yang, this observation of the oscillation between two complementary forces, which is also why, by extension, the Morning Lord versus Mother Night story was so compelling, 
because this was the kind of story I had built this character around. Just the idea of clerics being philosophers rather than worshipers, that change changed my view of the class in general. And another thing that I really like about it is that there are some people that are uncomfortable playing D&D because of the fact that there are gods in it. And so originally it was a thought experiment of what would D&D look like if there were no gods, if we didn't mention the cosmology, if we didn't mention religion or faith, where would clerics draw their power from? And this was an alternative that not only did I find more compelling, but I thought it felt more inclusive overall. So I was taking a look at the page that you mentioned, page 13 in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, and I noticed actually that it's kind of interesting before I get into uh, too much about what you were talking about. This is this section is actually kind of cool. Uh, the DMG talks about like tight pantheons where like there's certain certain deities and, you know, like you have the Greek mythos and you have the Norse mythos and things like that. You have mystery cults right? Secretive religious organizations that based on uh, on a ritual of initiation. I, I didn't even consider that uh, when I was making Corsara. Um, but also in retrospect, I kind of did something like that too. Monotheism, you know, we all know what that one is. Uh, dualism was actually something cool because I actually took a philosophy class in, um, in college. Dualism was one thing that I found, found was interesting. Like, uh, you know, in this case, uh, it says most often the opposed forces are good and evil uh, and people are expected to take sides or something. But then there's other ones where there's a balance between two natural opposing forces that needs to be maintained. And uh, that was kind of what I was doing almost with Mother Night and the Morning Lord. I said the Morning Lord was basically silent of what its followers were doing in terms of in its name, even though he probably knew that mother night was not having such a great time of it. Right. Uh, and we didn't know why, but we knew that these things were this, this conflict was throwing things out of balance. And of course it was, it was, uh, the villain that is always the villain in every story, man, <laughs> that was responsible. Um, then, so coming to, uh, forces and philosophies here, um, I think that conviction is something that I really enjoy learning more and more about in the, in storytelling, because if you look at Neil Gaiman, he made this he made this interesting um, thing in Good Omens where humans and human belief can cause things to happen, but there's a scale, and that angels and demons are at the high end of the scale where their belief makes things happen like that. Whereas human belief is like at the lowest possible end of the scale. So they can't manifest what they're dreaming of or the, the imagination that they have under normal circumstances. I think he used like a mountain scale where like one is like, like if it's, if it's measured in Everest's, right, <laughs> then humans are like at 0. 0.0001 Everest's. And angels are like 0.5 Everest. That's how much of an Everest they can manifest through their belief. Because there's kind of almost a historical precedent for this kind of conviction, even without like direct intervention from a deity that we can all see, kind of like D&D presents deities, 
it, it makes it more believable, right? The best stories are stories that are based on facts and history with a little bit of something sprinkled in there to change things around, right? So like in the Industrial Revolution, actually, that's why I think Eberron is so convic- uh, convincing and compelling as a story, because not only is it noir intrigue, which means that nothing is black and white, um, but it's also based on industrial revolution and the advancement of technology, which is something that we have gone through uh, as a society. So when it comes to using a philosophy instead of a divine power, I, I think that it's even more compelling in a lot of ways, just like you're saying. And something that really struck me and convinced me of this, besides what you've been doing, John, is that uh, it is something that Matt Colville quoted one time. I forget what book series he was quoting. You know, the main character, I don't know his name, the protagonist, I'm just going to call him protagonist. Protagonist is traveling with his party, right? Or something. And they get into a conflict and there's a holy warrior in the party and he's doing his holy warrior shenanigans. And the protagonist is like, the protagonist didn't know about like whether or not that per- that holy warrior's God existed, but he could see the conviction and faith glowing from the radiant energy in that character's sword. Are you, I just mentioned this on another podcast too. He might've been talking about Dresden. That might be it. Cause I yeah. mentioned it in Dresden. I might also be mixing you guys up. Oh, <laughs> yeah, because I listen to a lot of Matt Colbert. <laughs> we had talked about how Dresden's system of faith magic really informed how I ran divine magic in my games. That's and, what it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that must be so, it. <laughs> and in the context of Dresden specifically, because we're a little off the beaten path of cleric at the moment. But, you know, what is Michael but a paladin? Michael Carpenter wields a holy sword whose hilt is forged with one of the nails that was in Christ's body. So there's all this thought of, you know, Dresden, when he's making this comment, isn't sure if God is real. He's not really convinced necessarily of an almighty. He does acknowledge there are angels and there are demons um, and there are otherworldly outsiders. And he said, I don't know if God is real, but when Michael goes into battle with his holy sword, he can see his faith magic. He can see his conviction and that his faith in God is what fuels his divine smite. Closing thoughts. So my closing thoughts regarding the cleric and, you know, faith versus philosophy uh, is that I think we're, you know, it's a good thing to be able to have the option to make a God divine, you know, based cleric where, where the cleric is literally conversing with a deity. I think that's a good thing because people who aren't used to role-playing people who haven't explored those stories yet and seen where they lead need to start somewhere because if they don't start there, then, you know, we, if we hadn't started there, we wouldn't have gotten to this point in our in our lives as DMs and players where we're looking for a more complex story that is kind of reliant on the character itself. So I think it's still a good thing, just like I think it's a good thing to have a good and evil campaign 
where you have two opposing forces and the players can feel good about what they do without feeling guilty that they just murdered a whole bunch of orcs or something, if that was the evil side. But I do think that the best stories are stories that have a level of complexity that doesn't double back on itself too much and uh, can create things that making you question and think about the motivations of your character and what your character, what your character is really doing as well. Like what the actions of that character really represent. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, Shake It Up, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmorepodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Sugar, spice, and everything dice. These were the ingredients selected to create the most badass ladies in all of Arcandrum, each treated to a vision of the possible destruction that could befall the world if they did not stop it. Thus, the dream team was born. With their skills combined, Sildwen, the wild wood elf who is one with nature and doesn't understand the rest of the world. She'll find new friends that may inspire her to consider new ideals and learn to love a world outside of just the woods. Poppy, a skilled falconer with a history of mercenary work, some more questionable than others. She's a lover of ale, a good fight, and her best friend Pudge. Though she is loud and opinionated, she has a big heart. Zuri, a sarcastic bard of both lore and shanties, is always on the lookout for a new story to tell in the taverns. Jinx, a chaotic cleric and devout worshipper to the best goddess in all of the world, of course, Kiavani. She is a bundle of rainbows, sunshine, and butterflies. Are dedicating their lives to fighting the forces of evil. Crit Like a Girl is a cinematic podcast featuring the adventures of four strong women and an adorable little owl. Join us every other Monday and come see how we crit like a girl.